0: Hey everybody, this is Ryan James with I Squared Ministries. Today I want to do a podcast on Christology in light of Islam. Many people don't understand that the very central battleground between Christianity and Islam is the issue of Christology. So let's just jump right in. Islam at its core is a prayer movement that declares five times a day that Allah alone is God He is not a father, and he has no son. Christian scholars have rightly called Islam a Christological heresy, but it is far more than that. Islam itself is a polemic against the deity of Christ. Muslims do highly esteem a Jesus in the Quran as a great prophet, but their Jesus is not the biblical Jesus theologically or historically. Muslims will be very quick to say that they believe in Jesus or even that they love Jesus, but what Jesus do they love? Six hundred years after the writings of the New Testament, here is what we find in the Quran, Surah 573. They do blaspheme who say Christ, Allah is Christ, the Son of Mary. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, the fire will be his abode. Surah 4, 171, O people of the book, commit no excess in your religion, nor say of Allah, except the truth. Christ Jesus is the son of Mary, and no more than a messenger of Allah. Say not, Trinity, desist. It will be far better for you. For Allah is one Allah. Glory be to him. Surah 19, they, The Christians say that the most merciful has begotten a son. They have come up with something monstrous at which the heavens almost rupture and the earth splits. The mountains fall and crumble because they attribute a son to the most merciful. It is not befitting for the most merciful to have a son. Muslims often are well trained to deconstruct the divinity of Christ, but Christians often greatly lack the ability to communicate the deity of Christ to Muslims. I can't overemphasize the significance of Christology in ministry to Muslims. The study of Christ, his full divinity, is the premier and central battleground both spiritually and intellectually when sharing the gospel with Muslims. So let's explore the topic of the deity of Christ first. We must explain to Muslims that the apostles who wrote the New Testament were devout Jewish monotheists who grew up in the first century, 600 years before Muhammad. Getting Muslims to understand the Jewish worldview of the first century period is vital if we want them to understand what the apostles were trying to communicate about Jesus. So let's do a little history lesson. In the time in between the book of Malachi and the time of Christ, the Jews found themselves in a fierce battle to preserve their faith in the center of the rapidly expanding Greek and Roman empires. The expansion of the Greco Roman empires brought an entirely different worldview, including polytheism and emperor worship, that was pressing itself upon the Jews. This pressure was very troubling for most Jews and caused them to become even more devout to their Jewish monotheistic faith than ever before. Historians agree that first century Jews throughout the Roman Empire would recite the Shema twice a day in order to distinguish themselves from the pagan world. The Shema became the creed that defined what it meant to be a Jew in that time. It reads in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. The fierce Jewish Maccabean revolt of 167 BC against polytheism shows just how committed the Jews were to staying true to their one God, Yahweh. We, w- we must remember that it was in this time period in which the writers of the New Testament were born. Peter, James, John, and Paul, and the rest of the apostles were all Jews raised as strict monotheists, taught to resist the Roman paganism that was surrounding them. So let's begin to look at Jewish monotheism. The Jews of the first century didn't think about God the way many Western people think about God. Most people today would define the one God according to his essence in a list of attributes like all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and so on. These are referred to as the omni-attributes by theologians and were originally terms borrowed uh, by the church fathers from Greek philosophy to contextualize the gospel to the Greek-speaking world. The point is that these types of attributes were not commonly used by Jews to describe the God of Israel. Because of the pervasiveness of Greek thinking all throughout the Western world, people expect to see the apostles giving a list of Jesus being all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., etc. But again, this was not how the Jews of that time period would have defined God. Instead, the Jews of the first century defined the one God, Yahweh, from the Old Testament in categories that defined Yahweh's divine identity. I lean heavily on Dr. Richard Bauckham's work, Jesus and the God of Israel, for these. These categories or divine activities made Yahweh distinct as the God of Israel over and against any other god. And um, no other god could share in these uh, in these categories, they are number one, he's the sole creator and sustainer of life, number two, he has absolute sovereignty over the nations, number three, he's the covenantal God of Israel, number four, he's the God of the Exodus, number five, he is the final judge who would execute judgment at the day of the Lord, and number six, Yahweh alone was worthy of worship. Looking at the Old Testament, we can see all of these uh, categories outlined clearly in Isaiah 40 through 55 which is known as the pinnacle of Jewish monotheism Now turning our attention to the New Testament we see the writers of the of the New Testament text in spectacular fashion attributing all six of these divine categories of Yahweh's unique divine identity to Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. The Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, quotes Isaiah 45 within the famous Philippians to him that the universal worship of Yahweh was now attributed to Jesus's coming universal worship. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. There really could be no higher way for a Jew to express Jesus's deity. The passages in the Old Testament about the coming final judgment at the day of the Lord are now quoted in the New Testament as the day of the Lord Jesus. You can see this clearly as Isaiah 2 is quoted within 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Again and again in the New Testament, Jesus is attributed with creating and sustaining all things. For example, Colossians 1. Hebrews 1, John 1. In the book of Jude, Jesus is said to be the one who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us not to tempt Christ like the Israelites did in the wilderness, implying that the pre-incarnate Christ was the one present in the Exodus. In all four Gospels, we see Jesus initiating the new covenant with Israel at the Last Supper. With these famous words from Luke 22, This is the new covenant in my blood. All Jews know that only Yahweh could initiate the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Jesus receives worship only God deserves on numerous occasions. In Luke 19 and Matthew 21, the Pharisees are asking Jesus to rebuke his disciples for worshiping him. But instead, Jesus says, in essence... If they don't worship me, the rocks will cry out with worship instead. Amen. Also, if you're reading the New Testament through the Old Testament lens of uh, Yahweh's six unique uh, identities, you can see that over and over again, Jesus affirms his own deity in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus makes 45 unique statements about himself that only the God of Israel could make. Historically speaking, the earliest, most compelling statement Jesus makes is in Mark 14 when the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, I am. And all of you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, he uh, tore his robe and he said, do we still need witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. And they all condemned him to death. Jesus is clearly saying that he is the divine son of man from Daniel chapter 7, who rides on the clouds and receives worship in all the nations as his inheritance. This is exactly why the high priest tears his robe and cries out that Jesus' statement was blasphemy. Daniel 7, 13-14. In my vision, at night I looked. And there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all nations and people in every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says in more than 30 unique ways that he is the God of Israel. For instance, in John 8 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Finally, it seems that the ascension of Jesus was the ultimate declaration that demonstrated that Jesus was indeed the God of Israel. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus passing through the heavens and sitting down on the divine cosmic throne, sharing in the sovereignty over all things. Psalm 110 reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool under your feet. Psalm 110 was not widely understood as a messianic psalm in Second Temple Judaism. However, Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost and all throughout the birth of the early Christian church, Psalm 110 becomes the single most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, showing that it took a primary role in the understanding of Christology in the newly forming Christian community. That seems straightforward enough, right? These six unique categories that defined Yahweh's identity in the Old Testament are now all attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. Case closed. The apostles tell us, under divine inspiration, that Jesus is the God of Israel. Well, historically and theologically speaking, We need to be able to show that the Jews who wrote the New Testament were not heretics who were corrupting the Jewish monotheistic faith and that the gospel message that Jesus gave. The Muslims believe that somewhere along the line, the gospel became corrupted. Many Muslims say that the early Christians corrupted Jesus's message. Could this be true? If this is true, then Muslims need to be able to prove it. But if it is not true, we need to be able to explain how and why the disciples who personally knew Jesus um, were being faithful to preserve the previously revealed scriptures in what they preached and wrote in the New Testament documents. So here's the question we must be able to answer. How could these Jews of the first century make, make such a massive leap to believe that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, was also Yahweh, the God of Israel. Very important is the fact that the Jews of Jesus' day were not expecting the Messiah to be Yahweh. The term Messiah was the throne title for Israel, just as Pharaoh was the throne title for Egypt. After the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead, this still didn't necessarily mean that Jesus, the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, was Yahweh incarnate. Yes, he was without sin, and yes, he would never die. Yes, he was born of a virgin, but so was Adam, a direct creation of God. Adam was originally without sin, and God never intended for Adam to die. So how did the Jewish apostles who walked with this man from Nazareth come to the conclusion that he indeed was the God of Israel? This is an absolutely unthinkable that the God of Israel would be a simple, humble carpenter who grew up in Nazareth of all places how could the apostles make this massive theological leap and see their message as fulfilling the Old Testament? I don't believe their intention was to start a brand new religion. They themselves say that their message was perfectly fulfilling the Old Testament. So here's the key. All throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is seen as having plurality within His divine identity. I'll say that again. Yahweh... Was at has revealed himself from the very beginning as having plurality within his divine identity. Again, I lean into Richard Bauckham's work for this language. Here are six ways where the writers of the Old Testament intentionally include plurality within the divine identity. So the, how did the writers do this? The writers of the Old Testament. Number one. There is divine plurality in certain sentence structures when talking about Yahweh. Number two, theophanies or God sightings. And I'll explain these in a minute. Number three, the personification of wisdom. Number four, the personification of the word. Number five, the personification of glory. Number six, the angel of the Lord. First, let's look at sentence structures speaking of God and the divine plurality. From the very beginning, Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Again, notice the plural pronouns. In Genesis 19.24, it says, Then Yahweh rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of the heavens. The sentence structure simply doesn't make sense without having two distinct Yahwehs. This one is huge. The Shema, the very central creed, has divine plurality built within it. O Israel, hear this. The Lord, our God, the Lord, is one. If you look at the actual Hebrew, it says Yahweh, Elianu, the the plural form of God. Yahweh is Akkad. Akkad is means one in essence. The writer did not use the word yakid, which means singular, but rather ekad, which is one essence. This is the same word that the writer, Genesis, uses to talk about Adam and Eve becoming one. Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. So one divine figure speaking to another divine figure. Again, we're developing plurality within the divine identity. Now let's look at theophanies or visible encounters with God. First of all, we have to understand that Jews of the first century understood and believed that no one had ever actually seen God. So like in 1 John 4, 12, it says simply no one has ever seen God. Colossians 1.15, the sun is the, invis- is the image of the invisible God. So the first century Jews believed that God was invisible. No one had actually ever seen him. And so they had to figure out how to explain all the instances in the Old Testament when God comes down and talks face to face with people. For instance, in Genesis 3, God came down and walked and talked with Adam in the garden. So who was it that was talking with Adam and walking with him in the garden? In Genesis 18, Yahweh ate a meal with Abraham. Okay, so who is it that ate a meal with him? In in Exodus 24, the 70 elders ate a meal on the sea of glass and saw the God of Israel yet lived. Isaiah 6, Yahweh high and lifted up, the train of his robe fills the temple. So the Jews of Jesus' day basically understood all theophanies to either be the personified glory of God, the personified word of God, and wisdom personified all as a separate divine person who were still inclusive in the one divine identity of Yahweh. They never believed in multiple gods, obviously, but that the one God had multiple distinct persons. Okay, here's a couple of other examples. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is seen talking and as the creator of all things. So the personification of wisdom. In uh, Genesis 15, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. It doesn't make sense unless you understand that the word appeared here. All throughout the ancient Old Testament Aramaic translations called the Targums, the glory of God is used as the person when Yahweh is visible on the earth. So let's look at how the Old Testament angel of the Lord is included in the divine identity as a separate person. So in Exodus 3, we're told that the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. The angel speaks to Moses and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So basically, the angel clearly says that he is God, that he is Yahweh. These are, there are around 20 passages where the angel of the Lord is clearly identified as Yahweh. Some Jewish scholars call this phenomenon the second Yahweh. Why is this important? Because the Jews of Jesus' day were trying to explain the clear plurality within Yahweh from the Jewish scriptures. There's strong evidence that the view of Yahweh's plurality was considered an orthodox belief. Even uh, pointed out by a non-Christian Jewish scholar, Alan Siegel, in his book Two Powers, which is a polemical book against Christianity. But the point is that the two powers, the two Yahwehs, was not deemed heretical until later, 2nd century. Now let's conclude with this point. None of the New Testament writers give a long, lengthy philosophical explanation on how Jesus could be God along with the Father and the Spirit. Paul and none of the apostles seem to think that they are diverging from Jewish monotheism at all. It's clear in light of the data that the Jewish apostles were simply including Jesus into the already existing plurality within the divine identity of Yahweh from the Old Testament. Many Muslims will wonder how the apostles could have concluded that the infinite God came down and fit into a baby. However, the writers of the New Testament, again, give no long explanation on how this is possible. In the minds of the apostles, the second Yahweh had been coming down and making himself visible in human form ever since the garden. The truly incredible and unfathomable reality was that the apostles came to the conclusion that the high and lofty God of Israel chose to humble himself, being born in a stable in growing up in the most lowly of places, Nazareth. It was the contrast of God's height of glory and how low he came in the incarnation and the cross that was truly astounding. In fact, we will marvel with the apostles over these realities forever. And what is so offensive to Muslims about the incarnation is that we are claiming that God is humble. There Allah would never humble himself. We must mention that first century Jewish monotheism is completely different than Islam's version of monotheism called Tawhid. Islam's version of monotheism defines Allah as a single monad who is removed, distant, and never relates to his creation. The Islamic Allah cannot come down to earth and is unknowable and unrelatable. How desperately sad this is. This is very different when we realize the God of the Bible, while being transcendent and dwelling in unapproachable light, has always revealed himself by coming down as a relational knowable being. We want to make this teaching very practical. So, um, so let's conclude with a couple things here. Remember that missions exist because worship doesn't. It's not okay that Jesus isn't famous among the nations, and it's not okay that Muslims aren't steal, are stealing his glorious divinity and mocking his deity instead of worshiping him. If the church wants to finish the Great Commission, we must boldly and tenderly declare the truth about the glory of Christ to Muslims everywhere with great love and compassion. So let's pray. Father of glory, the hour has come glorify your son in the Muslim world. We want to see the nations worship him and adore him. Lord, we want to see the nations perpetually singing to the glory of his renown. Lord, have mercy on the Muslim world and reveal the glory of Jesus to them. Father, you said you would give Jesus the nations as his inheritance. You said you would draw all men to your son. Do it, O God. For the sake of your darling son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Christology in Light of Islam. I would just like to ask you, if you would, to click on the donate button below. Partner with me and my family at $10 a month so that we can continue to labor full-time amongst Muslims. Blessings.